only thing that fit to a number of these researchers in this crowdsourced investigation is that John Podesta is into little children. That's the conclusion that these researchers came to. Hey everyone, welcome to Sarah Uncensored. I am your host, Sarah Allspa. I have a few housekeeping things I'm going to go over before I get to my guest here today, David Seaman, an independent journalist who I was very excited to get to talk to. Um, I have a website now, it's sarahuncensored.com. So you can head over there for info about uh, the podcast episodes as well as I'm going to have my YouTube videos up there and it's going to be my main blogging site. So sarahuncensored.com now is in existence and I'm happy to get that up and running. So head over there and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Sarah Allspa. And of course, you can email me at sarahuncensored at gmail.com if you have Uh, any questions, you want to be on the show, you have a guest uh, recommendation, or uh, you hate what I say, let me know. Send me an email. Okay, so today I am talking to David Seaman. I first found David on Twitter, oh, about six years ago. I was sharing news stories from uh, Ben Swan, who's another favorite journalist of mine, and somebody recommended that I follow David based on that content. So I did. And he was running, I think, for Congress at the time when I started following him, believe it or not. And uh, that was quickly very difficult. And he realized how corrupt that process is. Um, And he had his own podcast, The David Seaman Hour. And anyway, I've been following his independent journalism for uh, since that time. So I find him to be a very trustworthy source. He was talking about the NSA spying like about a year before Snowden broke the news. I'm not really sure, but he was definitely talking about that for a while. And he was also talking about the drone program before it was regular news. He uh, was recently censored by the Huffington Post. Um, He had his story retracted. He was concerned about Hillary Clinton's health. And the story was up for a few days. It made it to their homepage, I believe, in in terms of like most popular stories. And then all of a sudden was gone. And they didn't say why you know, whatever. It was just pulled and his column was completely gone. So I was like, that's a little bit concerning because this is not a free press. First of all, the mainstream media started talking about her health like a week later. It came out that she had pneumonia. So first of all, his concern was legitimate. And the fact that they just deleted his column and just yanked it without even talking to him just was jaw dropping to me. I was just like, this is so corrupt. Our media is just beyond all help at this point. So anyway, he had that story yanked. And if he if there was a problem with the story, like an editor, somebody should have reached out and they should have done, you know, a correction or issued a statement or something, but you don't just take the story down. So anyway, that really obviously got my uh, feathers ruffled. And, you know, he was kind of onto something with that. So, so anyway, that's just kind of a media dictatorship. That's not freedom of press. So if you listen to my first podcast, the intro that I did for you know, what I want this podcast to be, then you know about my education and I have a degree in mass communication. So I've been trained in mainstream media and I have complete distrust in mainstream media. And I think it's a media critic Lionel from uh, lionelmedia.com. He calls them mainstream media repeaters, not reporters. And he's so correct. They're just repeating information. It's becoming more and more evident lately. This whole fake news thing is just laughable coming from anyone in mainstream media. So I'm going to say it a million times, but please stop using CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whatever else is out there now on cable as your main source of news. Find independent journalists that you trust and consult them regularly. Okay, 
enough with that rant. So anyway, I start this interview by asking David to catch us up on Pizzagate, as it's something he's been covering regularly on his YouTube channel. And I asked him to give us like a Pizzagate for skeptics overview because honestly, I think it's something that needs to be investigated. And like I said, um, I trust David as a journalist and I appreciate his looking into this. I have a day job, a part-time job. I have a new freelance gig. I don't have time to do this research all the time, but you bet that I spend, you know, 80% of my free time reading news and doing research. So, you know, from my own personal research, I think this is something that really needs to be looked at. Um, Something's up. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but David can definitely tell you more about that. Okay, here we go. I've been, uh, as many people know, who listen to your podcast probably, I've been in and around the independent media uh, for more than 10 years now, doing podcasts, doing YouTube videos. I had a Huffington Post column until recently. It was ended when I put up a couple of articles about Hillary Clinton's poor health. Uh, one of them hit their homepage as one of their top trending stories, and they ended my column over that. And it turns out she does have terrible health, in my view. Uh, that wasn't just election you know, election uh, rhetoric. She really is in poor health. Uh, But in more than 10 years of covering some fairly fringe stuff, including the NSA, including the drone program, I've just never seen this level of pushback on a story. Uh, Even when I was going, you know, full blast against the NSA several years ago, I never had my PayPal account frozen, as happened recently to me twice. Uh, I never had YouTube issue me a content violation strike, which now means that I can't do live streams on YouTube anymore until that strike is lifted. Uh, And I've never had issues with monetization before. They started demonetizing some of my news and commentary videos, and I went through their terms of service very carefully. My videos were not in violation of anything, and it is their platform, so they're allowed to do that, but they're basically punishing me not for any known reason, and it's happening to other YouTube channels. Uh, Reality Calls, this woman who's a very good researcher, uh, she has a big following on YouTube, and they banned her until April. She can't upload any video content until April, which is a long time from now. You know, politically, a lot can happen between early January and the middle of April. So, you know, if they were trying to silence me or they were trying to silence Pizzagate, which is this global crowdsourced investigation that I'm not even really a part of. It's just when people send me really good stuff, I summarize it in the video. But the crowdsourced investigation is happening on Vote, which is a social network similar to Reddit. Uh, And at first, it was all happening on Reddit. There was a subreddit called Pizzagate, and Reddit banned the entire community uh, and deleted every single post there uh, because they were getting too close to the truth. And the official reason that Reddit gave was that they don't want to promote witch hunts But, you know, half of Reddit is a witch hunt. Uh, That's the whole format of the site. So uh, very unusual stuff. I have to say, more than 10 years of and more than 10 years of kind of kicking the the beast, you know, and and kind of uncovering rocks and seeing what critters slither away. I've never encountered anything like this. Like the NSA didn't have a thin skin. The fucking drone program I went after didn't have a thin skin. But something here has unsettled some group of people. And if it were just happening to me, then maybe I'd discount it. But it's happening to pretty much anybody who chooses to research or discuss this topic. Yeah, and that's, I think, part of the reason I'm even more interested in it because of the reaction. To me, that proves that there's something there. 
And oh, totally. It, it's it's a tell. It's like if you play poker and somebody starts twitching, what does that mean? Like they're concerned that their hand isn't good, you know? And then there was recently, I think CNN accused um, Julian Assange of being a pedophile himself. And when I heard that, my jaw just kind of dropped. I was like, wait a minute. Isn't this like psychology 101 here? You accuse, you know, the person that's outing you of what is it called when you're accusing them of the crime you're committing or the thing you're committing? I'm just like, what? Well, exactly, Sarah. It's called projection, projection. psychological okay. thing. Where, you know, if you're doing something bad, everyone around you, you see in them that bad thing when really it's you're the one doing it. And a number of these investigators and researchers on the Internet have identified that the Clintons and the Podestas and people in that Clinton circle. This is one of their signature things. Whenever they're worried that somebody is going to attack them, they'll preemptively accuse that person of doing what they're doing. And you even noticed that during the election, the Trump Foundation uh, was like a financial appendix to Donald Trump, you know, like not very important, not something he really actively promotes, definitely not this global organization involved in, you know, Haiti and all these different countries like the Clinton Foundation, mm -hmm. nothing like that. And yet the Clintons started, you know, throwing all this mud at the Trump Foundation and making the public think that Trump had something to hide. And they do that seemingly at every level. But now the public, because we spend all day on sites like Reddit and Vote, we're wising up. We can see what they're doing. And, you know, a number of people said that weird fake news push by the mainstream media, which, by the way, started with Barack Obama because he gave a speech where he called out the fake news. Right. Okay. So then the media simply picked up what our president was saying. So if you want to source that weird narrative, it started with Obama himself. And this fake news push weirded out a lot of people because they're like, OK, Alex Jones is not new. Uh, Twitter journalists like me are not new, you know, social media journalists, rather. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even have a Twitter anymore. But uh, uh, very unusual. The whole thing is just once you get over the initial fear and the initial revulsion of what we're talking about and, and how disgusting it is, once you get over that stuff, it's kind of interesting because there's something going on here that is not normal at every level. I mean, why would you suspend my PayPal account? We're not even talking about a particularly high volume of activity considering I explained to them why I was receiving contributions, that it was, it had to do with my videos being demonetized on YouTube and then me, you know, a call to action telling people I want support. Mm -hmm. uh, I explained that all to PayPal, both on the phone and in an email. And so to, to penalize me after doing that, tells you something is up here. Something's unusual. And, you know, one researcher was supposedly threatened the other night by somebody. Uh, a lot of weird stuff is happening. So, okay, I've been following your journalism for years, and I, I trust you as a journalist, and I watch all of your YouTube videos, which have been coming out pretty much daily, which has been awesome. But um, to summarize, okay, there's still a lot of people who are skeptical, skeptical about Pizzagate, and I get it because, you know, the work a nine-to-five, they're going to their kids' soccer practice and all of that. Um, what are like the main points of the investigation or why you think that needs to be investigated? Like, Can you summarize just like the main points of it and then maybe we can understand more why you're being censored? Sure. Well, the main point of Pizzagate, and by the way, Pizzagate is a far easier scandal to explain to somebody than Watergate. Watergate is more complex than this. All Pizzagate actually is, the core claims, are that in John Podesta's emails, which were released by WikiLeaks, many of them have been cryptographically verified, so we know that they're the real emails that were sitting in his Gmail inbox, 
real emails he sent and received. And uh, in these emails uh, of John Podesta's, and by the way, John Podesta was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, and he was the former chief of staff uh, under Bill Clinton's White House. So just a very close Clinton insider, aside from being the chairman of her presidential campaign, uh, people have compared him to Doug Stamper. If you ever watch House of Cards on Netflix, he's like the Clinton family's fixer. He helps connect them with people. He helps kind of flesh out opportunities. And then he also is a very powerful lobbyist. Uh, the journalist, Abby Martin, uh, put up a YouTube video on the network that she works for. Uh, it's like a 20 or 30 minute expose about how powerful John Podesta is. In his orbit are all these defense contractors and stuff. And uh, people on Twitter have, have uh, allegedly uncovered that he receives more than $1.6 million a year oh. in consultant payments from Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this is a very well-connected person politically. Uh, but all Pizzagate is, is that in this guy's emails, he's talking about pizza again and again, and other food items like hot dogs, in a way that even though John Podesta uh, likes good food, uh, it's not explained. And so they went through it and they tried to figure out this is clearly a code language for something because the context and some of the conversations makes it abundantly clear that it's not physical pizza. For example, how do you go for pizza for an hour? Uh, for example, uh, Domino's better on cheese or pasta. What does that even mean? Well, when researchers identified that Domino's might be shorthand for domination or BDSM, then that leads you in a, in a different direction. But uh, so at first, a lot of researchers were sort of thinking maybe this is talking about drugs. Maybe these guys are into cocaine or weed or whatever. Uh, but it just didn't really – it didn't work that way. It didn't, it's like when you're trying to uh, solve a puzzle, right? You can't keep jamming the same piece in if it doesn't fit. And the only thing that fit to a number of these researchers in this crowdsourced investigation is that John Podesta is into little children. That's the conclusion that these researchers came to. And then sometime after that initial conclusion, uh, which was very controversial because it meant that Hillary Clinton had chosen as her campaign chairman a dangerous man who preys on young children, uh, that was the core claim of Pizzagate, is that this guy's talking about pizza excitedly a lot, and it's not real pizza, so what is it? And then there are a lot of incidental findings in the emails, like the fact that he and his brother are allegedly still great friends with the convicted child molester, Dennis Hastert, who remains great friends with the child molester, convicted child molester, mind you. Uh, so that came out. A number of bizarrely worded emails talking about children came out, not, not part of the pizza code word, but just bizarre focus on children and their ages, uh, children as young as seven and nine years old in one of the emails. Uh, so that is what Pizzagate is. And uh, it received a shot in the arm, uh, not only when the weird trolling attacks started against some of the researchers uh, prominently talking about this, but the shot in the arm came when somebody was able to get to uh, Andrew Breitbart's tweets from five years ago. As listeners may know, uh, your old tweets stay up on Twitter, but it's hard to go back through the search, I think beyond 90 or 120 days or something. But they went through and they found his tweets from 2011, and Andrew Breitbart and some of his tweets specifically named John Podesta as being a cover-upper, that was his word, uh, cover-upper, I think, of some kind of underage sex slave operation. Now, he actually said this in his tweets. So that, to a lot of people, was a boost 
in credibility because what was Andrew Breitbart looking at? The WikiLeaks didn't exist five years ago for John Podesta. So Andrew Breitbart must have had some kind of independent information that made him believe this. And then there's other weird stuff that surrounds that. Uh, Andrew Breitbart, there's a video of him on YouTube where a journalist has a recorder uh, on him, you know, or they're hoping to interview him or something as he's walking down a hallway. And uh, Andrew Breitbart says into the recorder, fuck you, John Podesta, what's in your closet? And says it in a way like he's really freaked out. And the next year, uh, at the age of 43, Andrew Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart has a heart attack and dies. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, my jaw, like, I wish you could see me, my jaw just dropped, but I know a lot of this and I hope people understand just kind of, it. to me it's not that shocking to know, I mean, you know, I feel like they've infiltrated every other, like, you know, we say it could have been drugs, it could have been anything, so why wouldn't it, couldn't it also be this, you know? Um, well, I, I, at this point, some people are really attacking me because, like, how can you be so sure? And I've said I'm not certain. It's just that this is the only thing that seems to fit. And this is based on what thousands of researchers are saying, not just me. If you go through the vote threads, it's all over the place. And I've had former law enforcement tell me that this code language is consistent with the things that they've seen in child abuse and child trafficking. So, and now, you know, yeah. So I'm fairly confident. And the other point of data that led people to believe this is for real is that when the Podesta emails were being released in batches by WikiLeaks, because that's how they do things, you know, it was uh, released piecemeal. Uh, but during that process on their Twitter feed, uh, their official Twitter feed, they tweeted out a link to a declassified FBI document uh, showing or helping you understand how to identify child predators, uh, some of the uh, symbols they use and some of the kind of code languages that they traffic in. Uh, so a number of people said, you know, WikiLeaks is not in the business of randomly tweeting out stuff that interrupts their narrative. They're focused on the Podesta emails. Why did they tweet this out in the middle? What was the purpose of that? Was that some was that some kind of tell to tell researchers you're looking in the wrong direction, look in this direction? And I believe it was. That's yeah. my. View. I agree with you. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, Pizzagate. It's just. It's really hard to believe. It's probably you know. It definitely has like some satanic roots and probably some religious affiliations and stuff. And I think people get a little lost in that too, and they just say like, oh you know, they don't believe in the Bible, so then they don't believe that people would do this. And I'm like, you have to understand all of this is possible. Like, if anyone can do this in regular society, why can't our leaders do this as well? Um, so we're, 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 What we're talking about is criminal activity, yeah. suspected criminal activity, not suspected spiritual activity, you know? So uh, to the extent that there is a satanic connection to some of this stuff, I think that that is a part of their pathology mm -hmm. of defending these horrible either addictions or sexual uh, preferences, whatever they are, uh, it's a way of covering up what horrible people they are, right? It's not just like they're terrible people, it's they're actually following a secret society's rules. So I think it's just really a justification for sick behavior. And uh, some of them might really believe the occult stuff, but I don't think the occult thing is the focus. I think the appropriate focus of Pizzagate was simply the fact that in his emails, he's talking about something in code and uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how much I could care either way, whether it's like tied to a ritual or not. Um, 
I just think so many people dismiss it as that. And I'm like, no, you guys just got to look further. There's just more to it. So thank you for all the work you're doing on that. But before you got all involved with the Pizzagate research, you were more pushing like um, alternative currencies and you're more of like a Bitcoin gold type of guy. And I love all your journalism and the research that you do on that. So can we kind of shift gears to money for a minute here and talk about, um, you know, what's going on with cash? What's going on with just our fiat currency in general? Where do you see this going? Um, should we be buying gold, Bitcoin? Talk money for a minute for me, David. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, India recently enacted something where they gave their people a very limited window of time uh, to redeem or get rid of their highest uh, denomination bills. So it'd be like as if one day you woke up and the U.S. government said, hey, you have to turn in your $100 bills within the next two weeks, so they're going to be worthless. They actually did the equivalent of that in India, and it caused quite a panic, quite a you know, outrage across the country. And in the West, there's been this ideological and academic push to move us closer and closer to what's known as the cashless society. Uh, there's a book by Kenneth Rogoff, who's one of the supposedly one of the most well-known economists in the world, and it's called The Curse of Cash, and it's essentially him promoting the, the negative aspects of cash. And so many people in academia and in the policymaking world are aggressively pushing for the reduction of cash right now almost uh, as frantically as that fake news thing came out. You know, they all tried to push fake news at once. Like, this is the most important thing right now is that you might get hit with fake news. And they all started talking about it. Mm -hmm. Well, in academia and in certain banking circles, all they're talking about is how fucking dangerous it is for a normal human being to have access to $500 of, you know, untrackable paper cash or $100 of untrackable paper cash and they're creating a hysteria that, you know, uh, cash that cannot be tracked can lead to terrorism. It can lead to, you know, violence and, and drug cartels and all this stuff, which is all true. But, uh, of course, you have to let people use their money. And you can't just have a cashless society where every dollar is tracked. Because if you have a cashless society, people might encounter what I encountered with PayPal, which is with the push of a button, they can make it so that you can't buy dinner. And uh, that's... That's something that we should try to avoid at all costs. So uh, there is definitely a push to reduce the public's interest in cash. And I think it's a push that's going to fail because it's based on a bunch of things that are not logical and are dishonest. Mm -hmm. So what are some solutions, though, if, you know, I kind of think if cash goes away or the economy crashes or something, I'm just like, well, everything will have to move to Bitcoin or you know, some sort of PayPal, like what happens if the economy crashes and we don't have, then the dollar doesn't mean anything tomorrow and we're in like a Venezuela situation, then what are we going to do? If there's a loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar, this isn't financial advice, but my expectation would be that people would just move to things that still work. So Bitcoin would still work okay. because it's used in numerous countries. It's not simply a U.S. instrument. Uh, and gold and silver have been dominant forms of money for the past 6,000 years of human civilization. So it's likely that people would start to use gold and silver again. And, uh, you know, we have such a myopia living in the U.S. or living in Canada or wherever people are listening to this from. If you live in the West, you're probably not privy to the fact that in India and China, 
uh, even their middle classes, even their lower middle classes, have an understanding of gold ownership, and they strive to own a certain amount of gold in the same way that we're taught, you know, make sure you have a rainy day fund that covers, you know, three months or six months of your salary or whatever, mm-hmm. in case you need to fix your car, or you have an unexpected uh, medical expense. People in China and India are taught that you want to own some gold, your family wants to own gold because that's like your bank account. And they have thousands of shops all over the country in India where you can sell your gold. And what's funny is we have this in the United States too. Every town or city that's sufficiently you know, big in population will have a coin shop where they test coins for purity and where they buy or sell uh, gold and silver bullion. And so I think if there was a disastrous drop in the confidence of the dollar or the euro, uh, the public would probably just start to use these coin shops that are already there. They're out in strip malls and, you know, they exist. It's just not that many people use it. But I think it'd be pretty easy for the population to go back to metal if it were absolutely necessary because people will still need money. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a Mad Max situation. It's just going to be really tough if that happens. It's going to be like Venezuela. So, you know, hyperinflation doesn't lead to Mad Max, leads to extremely long lines and sudden loss of purchasing power. I heard and, they were eating animals from the zoo over there. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, their- It got their, bad, right? Their crisis didn't start yesterday. They've okay, had hyperinflation okay. for years. <laughs> so let's say that we got hit tomorrow with some big hyperinflationary event. Uh, where they're at right now is where we would be in, let's say, 2019 or 2020, if a disaster were to okay. happen tomorrow, so. Okay, so we have some time. Because I'm not okay. gonna break into the zoo. all right so you have a lot going on what is coming up for you i'm excited it sounds like you have a new hire out there and you're starting to get an office and set up like a real journalism program i'm just excited that you're finally doing this so what is all coming up for you in the world of indie journalism i feel like there's so little journalism happening right now (laughs) and you know as somebody who briefly interned at gawker Uh, I feel like I'm almost the ghost of Gawker. You know, there is no Gawker anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no real adversarial journalism aside from The Intercept, which is covering these kind of top-level, brainy national security and policy stories. But there's nobody just kicking ass on a daily basis with either, you know, well-researched blog posts like Gawker used to do or... Uh, just short news videos that are news and not propaganda. Because when I turn on CNN now, I literally feel like I'm watching the propaganda of a losing side. And I feel that way because that's what I'm watching, right? I'm watching failed DNC and their surrogates trying to attack somebody whose votes, whose electoral votes have already been certified by Congress, which is like one of the weirdest, most pathetic things to watch. So I guess like really what's driving me is just I see an opportunity. Like I see something fun to do that we need to fix the media. So I don't want to apply at CNN and say, hey, I can fix you. I think CNN is cooked. Mm -hmm. I think the proper thing to do is rent an office, sign a lease for a year or two, uh, put together a little production studio, hire a couple of full-time researchers, and just do what Gawker did. Provide this 24-7 platform. It won't be the best but people will know that there's real journalism again. And uh, so I've found an office in Colorado. I'm gonna make an offer on it at some point, hopefully in the next month or two. And uh, I recently hired somebody, as you suggested, to help out with some of the surge and email volume and stuff and just help with coordinating things. 
but I see a, a chance to do this. And if I can partner with others in independent media to grow it even bigger, I'm happy to bring other people on as contributors and stuff. But this really is not about me and it's not about making money. It's just that there's not there's not adversarial journalism anymore. You know, aside from Glenn Greenwald and The Intercept, we don't have anybody. Yeah, you're right about that. And I got rid of my TV, I don't know, eight years ago now. And that was when I first realized. I was like, the more detached and the further you get away from it, you look back and you're like, CNN, and you just look and you're like, this is crazy. These people are crazy. They're, um, some media critic calls them repeaters, not reporters. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. So I am grateful for all the independent journalists out there. And like I said, I've been following you and your work for years now. So happy to hear you're doing more. And I'm a researchaholic, so let me know if you need any help. <laughs> Will do. Um, and then you're covering inauguration. Did you say that? I just watched one of your recent videos right before I talked to you. <laughs> yeah, I'll be in D.C. for the inauguration. So I'm going to have some special YouTube videos nice. go up and from D.C. All and. Right. Uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. I mean, it's a scary time because we're uncovering the fact that, uh, at least in my view, and allegedly, some of the top people uh, connected to Clinton are very bad people, evil people. And what's terrifying about that is how close they came to getting into power. You know, the thought of somebody like that yeah, being essentially, essentially invincible for the next four years and having access to as many little children as they want, the thought of that is is really revolting. But uh, we have to be thankful that that's not the outcome that happened. You know, the New York Times up until Election Day said 98% chance of Hillary winning or whatever that garbage statistic was. And uh, that's not how things went. History went in a different direction. And so uh, whatever is ahead for us, even if it's economic crisis, you know, you have to remember in the second debate, Donald Trump warned that we're in a bubble right now. Uh, why would he say that unless he believes we're in a bubble? Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, where can everyone find you online? I know you've recently moved. Um, you're on Vidme now. You moved from Twitter. So where can everyone find you? So here's the thing. Jack Dorsey, the current CEO of Twitter, has been such an idiot that I figured I have 50,000 followers. If I just leave and explain why, it'll make some waves, right? So I left Twitter because of that. Uh, because he just bans so many good people that simply don't share the politics of some wealthy person in San Francisco, but people who had not done anything wrong, right? So that I didn't agree with. And then when there was speculation about will Twitter ban Donald Trump, uh, that's when I was finally like just totally disgusted. Like, yeah, some fucking punk Jack Dorsey is going to silence the next president. Like, what are we talking about here? It's you know, crazy. like, why? It's crazy. Yeah, like, how can you run a social network and be considering? Uh, deleting Donald Trump's account. Even if you disagree with everything he's ever said since the day he was born, from a business point of view, why would you do that? That's just fucking censorship. That's mm -hmm. Orwell. That's 1984. So that's why I deleted my Twitter. And now I'm on Gab, which is a Twitter competitor, a Twitter uh, adversary. Highly recommend getting them if people are into social media stuff. And then, of course, I'm on YouTube. You just search for my name and my channel pops up. And I'm on a new channel or a new network, I mean, called VidMe. It's vid.me slash David Seaman. That's my channel. And VidMe is uh, an alternative to YouTube. The way I compare it so far is uh, if YouTube is the Uber, they have you know most of the numbers and a lot of the volume, but they're kind of ruthless and don't give a shit about you. Uh, then VidMe is like Lyft, where it's a little bit more friendly, 
Uh, people can tip you directly on every video. The comment section is more fun. Uh, it's just nicer, but not as many people use it yet. So I didn't realize the tipping aspect. I love that. I can't believe YouTube doesn't have that. Well, they have something like that, okay. but it's not as it's not as smooth as the one on yeah, Vimeo. I mean, I've never used it's it pretty much. YouTube. I think it's set up by default. So yeah, that's super nice. Well, awesome. Well, I will uh, definitely include links to all of your accounts in the description on this. But I know you're super busy, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much, David. I really appreciate all of your information. And like I said, you're definitely a great uh, resource for me. I always go and like confirm all my findings. And if, if you're on the same track, I know I'm on the right path. So thank you. <laughs> well, thanks again, Sarah, and keep up the great work. I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. All right, bye. All right, so special thanks to David for being my guest this week. It's, again, so nice to talk to him, um, having him do the work that I don't necessarily always have time to do. So uh, next podcast episode, I'm going to be talking to Allison Walton. She has a website, andbewell.com. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to her. I'm going to kind of shift gears while I love talking about media and government corruption and all that good stuff. Um, I also am passionate about, you know, living a conscious lifestyle, which I think is honestly uh, part of the solution to all of that is to eat well and um, focus on yourself first. So I'm really excited to talk to her. She's all about intuitive eating and just taking the conscious approach. So I will be talking to her on the next podcast episode and I'm sure it will be inspiring. So hopefully uh, you'll stick around and catch that one. And so uh, that's it for this one. I think I'm going to leave you guys with uh, an inspirational quote because I know things can get a little depressing, but it's... Um, important to keep on going. So this one is from Angela Davis. You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Peace. Thanks for listening.